Good evening to all. We are in Genesis chapter 22. As we are working our way through the whole Bible, and um, 50 chapters in Genesis, so not quite halfway, but we are ending the life of Abraham. Uh, just about there. But we come to probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Because this is the only time in the scripture where we have an incredible insight from the heart of God concerning his son and also the prophetic type, if you would, or picture of Christ uh, being given by the Father and Jesus willingly being the sacrifice uh, for our sins. But no man can do it. No angel can do it. God alone had to give his life. Well, we come to chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things. What things? You can go back in the chapter. There was a big issue after Isaac was weaned where Ishmael, which would have been about... 15, 16 years old, was making fun probably of Sarah, who in the procedures of weaning was the last time she was weaning. And of course, she would be about 93, 95 years old, depending on how old uh, he was when he was being weaned. So it would have been uh, quite an extraordinary sight. I, I think Sarah breastfeeding was typically um, probably in the tent, away from people, because uh, of the oddness of how it would have looked. But um, in this particular case, Sarah said, hey, there's no way the son of the bondwoman should be raised up with my son Isaac. And it grieved Abraham. Uh, we can remember earlier, Abraham said, oh, Lord, please let Ishmael be the one. Let him live before you. And God said, no, through Sarah, the promised son will come. And um, so... Abraham obeyed God and sent Ishmael away. And no doubt, it was quite a test from God. But it was a clear declaration. We looked at in, in Galatians 3, and we learned about this. It's, a, it's a, a doctrine, and Paul spends a whole chapter from chapter 21 about Ishmael being separated from Isaac, and how the work of the flesh and the work of faith cannot go hand in hand, that you got to get rid of one. Grace is no longer grace, or works is no longer works. If we're saved by grace, works has to be cast out. The work and the efforts and the energies of the flesh for us gaining our righteousness has to go. But either way, with Abraham, he loved Ishmael greatly, and, and allowing the wife, uh, the Lord said, listen to her and send out Hagar and Ishmael. And uh, he passed that test, but now God's going to give him another test, this time on number uh, second son, but really the only son, Isaac. And so it says here that God tested Abraham. Let me tell you guys, all of life is a test. I, I told my kids all the time, well, well, this is unfair. It's a test. It's a test from God. Well, my friend said it's a test from God. Every time it's a test, life is a test. And it's okay. 
But I love this story here because God tested Abraham and it appears that Abraham knew God was getting ready to test him. So it's sort of like, hey, time for final exam. And Abraham said, yep, I realize that's coming. But he said to Abraham, Abraham, and then he, Abraham said, here I am. So this, this is an interesting story. Because it's not like in his heart or in his mind that this command from God is happening. It's a real thing. It reminds me of a later story where, you know, Samuel is a little boy in the night. The Lord said, Samuel, Samuel. And, and finally, Eli says, say, next time, just say, here I am, Lord. <laughs> what do you have to say? And, uh, and in this case, Abraham, who's communicated with God many times, again, this is one of those videos we're going to want to watch when we get to heaven, see exactly how it happened, whether he appeared to him, it doesn't appear, it just seems to be a voice that, that Abraham wasn't, you know, like Mary, when Gabriel appeared, it's like, oh, I'm overwhelmed at this situation. It doesn't seem overwhelming to Abraham. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, God's talking to me again. Hey, God, yeah, here I am. What's going on? And, uh, and he, God, in, in verse 2, said, Take now your son, listen to this, your only son, excuse me, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A couple of important notes here. His only son. You know, we have John 3.16 that says God gave his only begotten son. We don't really know what that term means, but I think it's this. Him saying there is only one son that's approved of God to be the sacrifice, and that's his son, Jesus. In this case, it's a, to be a picture of saying, um, Abraham, there's only one son that God destined, that God prophesied about ahead of time. Then it's only through Isaac the Messiah will come. He's especially elected, anointed, that's the word Christ or Messiah, the anointed one, to, to be the one of the lineage of the Messiah. Of course, with Christ, he's the only begotten, he's the only one, the only one, who is his son that could be the sacrifice, a substitute for you and me. The word love here is the first time it appears in the Bible. Pretty crazy, isn't it? it took 22 chapters to finally get the word love in there. And how is it being used? The love of a father towards a son. This whole chapter, don't forget, as we're going to see very clearly, is about God the Father and God the Son. This is just a shadow of what the substance would really be in Christ. And so in Abraham, we are to see the great love he has for Isaac, but times a gazillion, the great love that God has towards his son, his only son, Jesus. And then we see Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is, we'll discover later, in 2 Chronicles 3, that God spoke to Solomon to build the temple on Mount Moriah, in specific on a hill of Jerusalem. And I think here very clearly that Abraham took 
Isaac to Golgotha, to the same spot later that Jesus would be crucified. In the same way, I think right now that Isaac is 33 years old. And that would make Abraham 133 years old because, you know, his 100-year-old present was to have a baby um, from his 90-year-old wife. So, you know, to bring to mind in, in Romans 15, 4, it says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort or the endurance and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Also in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things, all these things happen to them, all the Old Testament saints, as an example that they were written for our admonition, that's the word teaching, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So when we look at these Old Testament passages, we say, man, this must have been great for Jeremiah. This must have been helpful for Daniel. This must have been great for the apostles. But God is telling us here in Romans and 1 Corinthians that all the Bible is most of all for those who would be at the end of the age, before the rapture of the church, which is happening very, very soon. Um, it was crazy yesterday. I, I still got goosebumps from it. But uh, one of the UN guys was speaking, and he says, NATO needs to just become a giant military force in the world. And I thought, wow, the Roman Empire being renewed when the EU came together. But now he is saying that Europe needs to link. All of Europe needs to link and become a military force. This is exactly what the Bible says. And from that union, the Antichrist will come up out of one of the insignificant smaller countries. He'll take out three other countries, and then he will be the Antichrist. So, uh, you know, things have already been set up to happen very quickly, and, and statements like that, just red flags go up. We are near. This is the first time the word Moriah is being used. And then it's clearly a burnt offering. A burnt offering is a sin offering. Um, there's all kinds of offerings, peace offerings and fellowship offerings. And a lot of those, the meat would be barbecued and you would eat it with the priest and fellowship and fellowship with God. And then part of it, the priest would take home to his family. But the burnt offering, none of it was eaten. It was all burnt up um, after it was killed for the sin. And so you're going to go to the spot on the, the mountain range of Moriah, the one that I tell you. And um, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So, once again, we have seen in Abraham's life this immediate obedience. I used to tell my kids, slow obedience is no obedience. True obedience is immediate. And we saw him immediately when God said to, or to circumcise himself and his family. He did it immediately. We're seeing this over and over again. And, and now here, the next morning, he gets up. I mean, don't you think most people would be 
okay, I'm gonna go sacrifice my son as a burnt offering. Oh, give me a month to process this. I gotta talk to some people about this and, and double check on this, you know. God, I, I need you to speak to me, uh, you know, a little clearer than, no, not, not for Abraham. I honestly think his blood pressure did not rise. I don't think he was bothered by this even a little bit. Why? Because Hebrews 11 gives us the insight of what was really happening in Abraham. In Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. We looked at that in earlier passages. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So he knew that Isaac would be the one the descendants come from. So if he killed Isaac and burnt him down to dust, he knew that God would bring him back to life because he had not yet been married, had not yet had kids. So even if God said to kill him, he knew he wasn't going to stay dead. Had Abraham ever seen anybody raised from the dead? No, we have no record of that at this point. So it's been a pattern. It's been a, it's been a long path for them to learn that they can really believe God's word. You know, we, we looked at this last week when God first spoke to Abraham by himself. Hey, you're, you know, you and Sarah are going to have a child next year. And it said he fell on his face and laughed, saying, how could such a thing happen? An old man and an old woman, that's, you know. Now, Romans 4 says that Abraham never staggered in unbelief that he believed firmly that whatever God said, he was able also to perform. It had gone deep into his soul because a few months later, maybe weeks later, we don't know, but God says the same thing to Abraham again, and Sarah is on the other side of the tent, and she has the same response as Abraham, <laughs> and says to him also in the same way, um, she laughs in her heart. She doesn't out loud like Abraham did, but God said, oh, she laughed. Oh, no, I didn't laugh. No, you did in your heart. God hears the meditations of our heart. And then God proposes this to her in Genesis 18, verse 14. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And when you see Abraham's reaction and a few weeks, months later, Sarah's reaction. We don't get a picture of people who had this reverence for God. This, you know, you are God, we are not. <laughs> you are all powerful, we are not. You are the creator, we are the piece of dust <laughs> on this big piece of dust that's really not that big. It, it's not that kind of, of view of God. But 
when that baby Isaac was born, it seems like something deep happened to them. And we saw last week where Sarah said, let's call him Isaac, like the Lord said, because God has made me laugh. I'm not laughing at him anymore. I'm laughing because his word is so true, even in the impossible. And I think Abraham and his faith, now understand, back in Genesis 12, he was 75. Now I believe he's 133. So his faith didn't grow overnight. (laughs) Now, he's got plenty of time to walk by faith. He's not going to die, I think, until 175. But nevertheless, at this point, we see that he believes there is nothing hard for the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I think that's why he spoke it to Abraham one time and then later he said it a second time to him. We're going to see tonight God repeat some of the promises to Abraham because the more we hear the word of God, it strengthens our inner man. It strengthens our faith. So with that in mind, let me ask you the question, is anything hard for the Lord? Well, Job certainly didn't think so. In Job 42, verse 1 and 2, And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours will be withheld from you. Guys, you might want to memorize that one. Verse 1 is real easy. Job answered the Lord and said. It's really verse 2 is the key, right? I know you can do everything, and no purpose of yours will be withheld from you. Jeremiah, also 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Is there anything too hard for you? Jeremiah 32, 27, just 10 verses later. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? No, I just said that. Nothing's too hard for you. Ten verses later, God speaks back to Jeremiah. You're right. Nothing's hard for me. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. In Mark 9, 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, say it, guys, all things are possible to him who believes. In Mark eleven twenty two to 24, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart. Uh-oh, does not doubt in his heart. Romans 4 says, nope, Abraham did not doubt in his heart, but believed that no matter how outrageous God's, whatever he said, he was able to back it up with his power. But he goes on, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them. And what? You will have them. In Luke 137, with God, nothing is impossible. Look back up to Mark 9.23. With God, all things are possible. And now the flip side of the coin, with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible. And on the other side of the coin, nothing's impossible. And in Luke 18.27, he said, all things which are impossible with men 
are possible with God. Isn't that funny sometimes how we, we do that? It's like, well, I can't make that happen, so God can't make that happen. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I don't know how I would accomplish that, so it can't be accomplished. And we rule God right out of the equation. It's rather ridiculous. Well, <clears throat> in John 14, 1, here's a great one. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's why I believe in this chapter, Abraham's heart was not troubled. Even though it was an outrageous thing that he was getting ready to do, I do not believe his heart was troubled. I believe he was just so deep in his faith. Well, moving back over here to Genesis 22. He rose early in the morning. He saddled up the donkeys, and then he grabbed two young men, but this wasn't until after he had split the wood for the burnt offering, and then he arose and went to this place. So it's, it's, the picture is this 133-year-old guy gets up early. He can't, he can't wait to get there. He's full of energy. He's splitting the wood. He's getting the donkey saddled up. Everything's ready. And then he grabs a couple of the young guys that, that are there and say, oh, come on with us. But he did it all. It was his energies of faith. He was the one acting in faith. And, and notice what it says. He, at the end of verse 3, he arose and went to the place, what? Which God had told him. Now on the third day, anything important about the third day in the Bible, guys? Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Notice, we will go. We will worship, and then what? We will come back. Abraham's really confident, isn't he? He's certain that God's going to make him sacrifice his son and kill him. But he's equally convinced that his son will rise from the dead, even though Nothing in history to that point like that has ever happened. Notice here in verse 5, another first mention. Boy, a lot of first mentions, huh? First time love's mentioned. First time Mariah's mentioned. Now the first time worship. And this is simply the word that is bow down. You know, it's, it's interesting how we have, in a sense, sort of perverted the word worship. We even say Worship is, and immediately you think, oh, we're singing. No. Worship is putting God first and forgetting about yourself and honoring him. Every time you do that, you get up early and pray. You are putting God first, not putting yourself first, honoring God when you really want to honor your flesh. When you go to church, it's a big deal. It's hard to do these days, especially with a thousand other ways of going to church without going to church. <laughs> Praying, boy, that's a big one. Reading the Bible. It's another, if you, if you notice, 
If it's something you love, you don't have to crucify your flesh to do it. If you love fishing and somebody says, we've got to go four o'clock in the morning to get out there and, you know, get everything ready. So we're, we're ready. To, you know, it's like four o'clock. Oh, great. Man, whew, guy's up at three in the morning. He's full of energy, making the coffee. He's excited and, you know, got his clothes all laid out. And, and, and okay, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting at four in the morning on Saturday. Oh, my God. You've got to be, who in the world would do that? We, we can see quickly. That, that our flesh, if it's watch TV, can do it. If it's read the Bible, oh, this is so hard. Every time you do it, it's worship. So think about this. What was Abraham thinking about when he said, me and the lad are going to go worship? The first time the Bible is used in worship, it wasn't, we're going to go songs and dance around and we're going to have this lovely worship service it, it wasn't the case was it the word worship does not mean that whatsoever it meant we're going to go up that hill and I'm going to kill my son and my son's going to die and then I'm going to give him to God as a burnt sacrifice that's what he meant when he said we're going to go worship. We really need to recalculate the concept of worship and say singing is singing and quit calling it worship. And then to say, yes, we need to worship our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to worship seeking him first. And in every act of worship, it's death to ourselves. Because we're in a sinful body, it means nothing. It always has to require the death, right? We pray, death to ourselves. We come to church, death to ourselves. We read the Bible, death to ourselves. We share the Lord with somebody, death to ourselves. And in essence, he's saying, we're going up there to die. And, and I'll have to tell you, I think Abraham would have much rather heard Abraham and go offer yourself as a sacrifice. Oh, that's much easier. But to take his son who's going to trust him, whom he loves. He knows the nature of his son, will obey his dad no matter what. That would be much, much harder worship. But that was the worship that God required, and that was the worship Abraham was willing to give. We're going to go, we're going to worship, and we're going to come back to you. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, and notice this picture here. He laid it on Isaac, his son. Can you see what a picture this is? When Jesus left the jail, and he walked the Via Della Rosa, the way to Golgotha, they put on these guys what was called the patabulum. It was the horizontal part of the wood and made them carry it. And Jesus would have been carrying the wood on his back as he headed to Moriah. And so was Isaac. What a picture he is there. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, the fire, the wood, 
but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb of the burnt offering, for the two of them went together. Now notice there, I skipped the word for. God provide for himself a lamb. In the King James, it does not add the word for. The word for is not there in the text. I got it marked out in my Bible with the big line through it. It literally is saying, God will provide himself the, as the lamb for the sin offering, the burnt offering. This is clearly a prophecy of Jesus becoming the lamb. This is why John Baptist in John 1.29 said, John saw Jesus coming towards him in John 1.29, and he said, Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering or the sin offering. We get into Leviticus, we're going to see it's called the same exact thing. Sometimes referred to as a burnt offering, sometimes referred to as a sin offering. And so the two of them went together and they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac. Now, do you think this 33-year-old guy could have taken down his 133-year-old dad? Yeah, I, I mean, I just don't think this would happen if there was any resistance whatsoever. I believe there was no resistance. He bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar. Again, it makes it clear, upon the wood. It makes it clear. It could have just stopped there and said, laid him on the altar. We know already that the wood was already laid there, right? But he makes it clear upon the wood. Again, Jesus would have dropped that patabulum on the ground. And the Roman soldier would have taken it and hooked it on to the vertical part of the cross. And then Jesus would have been laid on the wood as they put the nails in his hands and into his feet. Boy, oh boy. What's it tell us in the scripture? In Luke 22, 41, 42, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt and he prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Isaac was willing. He bound him. He laid him on the wood. Jesus realized this wasn't going to be something that was stayed by God's hand. <laughs> he actually was going to die. He literally was going to be tortured and suffer greatly. And where was the father in all of this? It's interesting. The father and the son together. The father, the son together. You know what? The picture I see is Jesus at Gethsemane. The father was there 
but not speaking. The father was there when they were beating him and torturing him in the prison. The father was there as Jesus was carrying the wood on his back. And the father was there when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Boy, it just rips your heart out to realize what a great sacrifice it is that the father gave his only begotten son. And he tells us it wasn't out of empathy. It wasn't because we were so pathetic. It's because he loved us. And he wanted to see us pure, without spot, without without blemish, without wrinkle, that we could be righteous and go to heaven with the father forever. And so, what a picture it is. In Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there was a point when Jesus left Gethsemane that he just realized There is no other way. And I think the conversation to Gethsemane is once again to make it clear to us there is no other way. And I understand in our human nature, we're like, well, I know this Buddhist and man, he just is so kind. And so I know this Mormon and he's just such a wonderful person. I know this Muslim and man, he is better than me. I I know this guy. I, I understand in our humanness. But let me tell you, if there is another way, it makes the father an evil person to have his son tortured and died. When Jesus raised from the dead, scars in his body for all of eternity, and the father says, all right, Jesus, you're the 675th way that men can go to heaven now. We've got Buddhism, we've got, you know, the Mormonism, we've got Taoism, we've got the Muslim religion, we've got all these, and now we've got another Christian one. Oh, this is wonderful. It makes Jesus a putz. Because he went through it believing that there was no other way that men could be saved. There's no other way men could be free from their sins and counted righteous before God, except he go to the cross, bear all the sins of the world, which evidently was not completely necessary because there's so many other ways men can get to heaven. And to die a gruesome death and to raise again from the dead. Guys, there is no other way. And here... It tells us that Jesus at a point when he left Garden Gethsemane, that then it was the joy. All he pictured was us. He pictured us being here tonight. He pictured us praying. He pictured us singing songs. He pictured us at the, in heaven at the Lamb, the um, marriage supper of the Lamb. He pictured us in heaven for all of eternity. And that was enough. The joy of people being free from their sin. Can you remember what it was like before you were saved? Man, I can. It was a dark place. 
so full of anger and hate. And I'll tell you, being born again is exactly all that it's cracked up to be. It really is being forgiven. I can remember that sense of by faith believing God and, and the burden was gone and I was full of joy. And of course, trials, confusion, and trying to understand the Bible and dealing with parents and people and the struggles of school, all of those things made it difficult to grow in my faith. And I wasn't a part of a real Bible teaching church like you guys are. I learned the Bible by myself. The church did not teach me the Bible. Taught me all kinds of stuff, but not the Bible. And so again here, yes, it was necessary that all the sins of the world were laid on Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 7. He was wounded for whose? Our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the crucifixion of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, God the Father, has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't curse back, he didn't complain, he didn't declare how innocent he was, how guilty they are. The only words that came out of Jesus' mouth was forgiveness and kindness. Well, finishing up here in verse 10. So Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to stay, to slay his son. But the angel or the messenger, Jesus, the, the, of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, here it is, Fear God or have a deep respect of God. Remember I talked about earlier, it doesn't appear this, that was the case. God is speaking to Abraham and he falls on his face and laughs at what God says. How irreverent can you get? Sarah is laughing in her heart. How stupid, what a ridiculous thing God's saying. I'm 90 years old, that would be ridiculous. I mean, they're eating with God, they're talking to God. And yet there was not this sense of when God speaks his word, we reverence him, we worship him, we believe him, we trust in him. And anything less is sin. But at this point we see, we see as human beings, we see, God already knew, was in the heart of Abraham, but we get to see this deep, for the first time, really, this deep respect and honoring of God. And boy, did Abraham honor God. Did he not? 
Do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him, for I know that you fear me. Have a great respect and honor of me, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Hebrews 11 says, your only begotten son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. What happened here, guys? God provided a substitute for these guys. What did Jesus do on the cross? (laughs) He provided a substitute for our sins, his son Jesus. So there's a substitute. There's the horns caught, a very unusual thing. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh, or Jehovah, right? I guess the old King James says Jehovah, but Yahweh, Yahweh Jireh, God our provider, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, listen, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What a burnt offering. What a sin offering. What a substitute that God will give us. And that provision will be God himself, the Lamb of God. And the angel Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now here's the thing he's spoken many times. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall be possessed the gate of their enemy. And in your seed, all the nations, singular guys, this is really important. It doesn't say seeds, only one seed, the Christ, the Messiah. In your seed, all the nations or all the people groups of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice through circumcision, through getting rid of Ishmael, by now dedicating Isaac to me in a way that only God the Father himself will do for, of his own son. Your blessing you'll be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, take a note there, verse 19, because that's going to be real important when we get to chapter 24. I and the lad shall return, but then it says Abraham returned to his young man. Why is this significant? Chapter 24, you'll find out then. Um, and then there's just a quick little note. Don't forget about Abraham's brother Nahor. Because he, remember his wife Milcah, which is also his niece from his brother Haran, they had some kids, and there's Huz and Buzz and a few others. And what's important, though, is that they had a daughter named Rebecca. Why is that important? We're going to find out in chapter 24. So these last couple of verses here, verse 19 all the way to the end, is setting us up for chapter 24. 
And many of you are flipping into chapter 24 to go, what is over there? We don't see Isaac again after Mount Moriah until he is meeting his bride. The next time we'll see Isaac, he is accepting his bride. Any significance there, guys? After Jesus rose again, the next time we'll see him is when the bride is caught up to be with him in the air. And he also had some concubines, which means he was wealthy, and he was similar to Abraham, who had concubines with kids. So it's sort of a family uh, practice, um, historical facts. But not significant to the story other than Rebecca. Well, guys, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Wow, we worship. <laughs> we worship. We hear your word, and it goes deep into our own soul. We hear your word and we realize, yes, Lord, me too. I want to have that faith as Abraham did. Lord, I, when you call me to worship, which means to be willing to sacrifice it all, die to it all, trust you even unto death, we would worship. I think of how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians have been burned to the stake beaten to death, died by the sword, by, died by the saw, died by in the glass. All of these things, Lord, and that they worshiped unto death. Lord, let us now, even though we may not be challenged to be physically put in prison or, or dying, that's next year, but yet this year, Lord, here we are. Lord, help us to go unto you and to worship you. Death to ourself, that there might be life in others. That we would carry about in our bodies the death of Christ, that the life of Christ would be in others. So that death is working in me, Paul says, that life would be in you. Lord, let us live that life of worship, bowing down and saying, your word is always true, and we will live by it. Your ways are always true, and we will deny ourselves and take up the cross to do it. Thank you for strengthening our faith this evening. 